The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, I'm Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of July 8th, 2019. On this week's show, we'll talk about the latest triumph for the U.S. women's national soccer team and what comes next for the team and its players after their fourth World Cup victory. Ethan Strauss of The Athletic will also be here to discuss Kawhi Leonard's move to the LA Clippers, how he brought Paul George with him, and what this maneuvering means for the NBA. Finally, Louisa Thomas will join to assess the 15-year-old tennis sensation, Corey Coco Goff. Joining me now from Paris, where he has traveled after watching the United States win the World Cup in Lyon, Stefan Fatsis, the author of the book's Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Are you feeling triumphant, Stefan? Yes, very triumphant, Josh. It was really cool. The vibe in the stadium was fantastic, obviously. We had great seats thanks to some people we met on the tram to the game because our <laughs> seats, thanks to FIFA's terrible allocation process, sucked. But someone on the tram was like, oh, somebody gave us some free tickets the other day because I didn't think they were going to come back for the final. And I've got two extras. So my daughter and I sat in the good seats. My wife sat in the upper deck. (laughs) She took one for the team. That's amazing. So before we get to the game and everything else around it, you asked me uh, this morning, when did Hang Up and Listen start? When is our 10th anniversary? And I looked it up. The correct answer is July 6th, 2009. We missed our anniversary. It's two days ago. Oh my God, Josh. I'm so sorry. I hope that doesn't mean that our relationship is suffering. Uh, well, I totally forgot it. You at least kind of remembered it. So did you remember, I had not remembered that it start, we started out as a monthly podcast and we didn't go weekly until February 2010. So maybe what I was uh, thinking deep in the recesses of my mind was, I'm going to wait to celebrate our 10th anniversary uh, until uh, mm-hmm. February 2020. So the first six months were kind of like the first date. And then finally, in February 2010, we really locked things down. We weren't sure if it was going to work out. So let's informally celebrate the 10th anniversary of Hang Up and Listen. What a journey it's been, Stefan. Um, but we'll do some more formal festivities maybe a little bit later this year. We'll trot out the old gang. Yeah, maybe maybe an oral history. Sounds great. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. On Sunday in Lyon, with the help of goals from Megan Rapinoe and Rose Lavelle, the U.S. women's national team beat the Netherlands 2 to nothing to win the World Cup. It was the team's second consecutive World Cup victory, uh, fourth overall since the tournament became an official FIFA event in 1991. Rapina was the star of the tournament on and off the field. She won the Golden Boot as the leading scorer. She won the Golden Ball as the best player in the World Cup. But this was the proverbial total team effort. Amazing performances from relative youngsters like Rose Lavelle, like Sam U.S., veterans like Alex Morgan and Becky Sauerbrunn, and a whole lot more. 
Stefan, let's start with the on-the-field goodness. What did you see from the good seats in the stadium? What did Melissa see from the the bad seats in the upper deck? (laughs) (laughs) Um, What we saw was, like, in the first half, the Netherlands, I think, had a strategy, which was to hunker down, play behind the ball, and honestly, I think, hope they could get through 90 minutes at 0-0 and then through 120 minutes at 0-0 and have penalty kicks decide the World Cup. This is what we call the 2016 Sweden strategy from the Olympics? Correct. Yes, the bunkering down. The Netherlands had some chances on the counterattack. In the first half, we had the Netherlands coming toward us where we were sitting. So there wasn't much going on. The U.S. had a lot of ball possession. The Netherlands had a couple of opportunities on counterattacks. But I have a suspicion, and I haven't read or heard anything about what they talked about at halftime. And I think the United States realized that nothing was really working. Long balls weren't working. Pushing the ball down the wing wasn't working. um, That they had to change things. And what changed them was Alex Morgan drawing a penalty. um, And it was a clear penalty. And that was really close to where we were sitting. um, Because we saw it. And you could sort of tell, you know, in that way when you're 15 rows up and you're not quite sure what exactly has happened, but it looked like the Dutch player's leg was awfully high. And I actually, and I'm very proud of this moment as a fan in the stands, when the play continued, I started making a little TV box in front of me. So I knew it was coming. We love VAR. VAR has never done us wrong. A great system that is here to stay. So yeah, after that happened, the game changes and you know it was an interesting contrast to um the earlier rounds where the u.s had scored in the first 15 minutes in every game up until the final first 12 minutes apologies um and then especially when they got to the tougher opponents spain france and england they really played with the parking brake on and did not unleash their attack. I felt like they let those other teams have too many chances and really were, you know, not playing as aggressively as at least I would have liked to have seen as a, as a fan. And so I really loved the fact that they kept going for it against the Netherlands. The final 2-0 scoreline didn't really do them justice. I kind of felt like they deserved like a five nothing. <laughs> That's what I really wanted to see to cap off this tournament. I'll take the victory though. Sitting there, Chloe and I were thinking, my daughter and I were thinking that it was going to be four or five. I mean, look, they missed three breaks. Crystal Dunn should have slid the ball over to Alex Morgan for an easy tap in on one. Tobin Heath seemed more interested in like nutmegging somebody, as Grant Wall pointed out on Twitter, rather than scoring a goal. Alex Morgan missed a breakaway also. So there were opportunities to get it to four or five. But yeah, they were clearly superior. The Netherlands clearly were not at the fitness level that the United States was at. They were clearly not as good a team. I mean, this was the weakest team they played since the Spain game in the round of 16. Um, so, yes, it was good to see them be more attacking, but they also didn't capitalize on the attacks early, and then when they realized, shit, we need to do this, we need to, to turn it on, they were able to turn it on. I think the last half of this game was the United States team that we wanted to see against the higher quality European opponents that they faced in the knockout rounds, and it was a great time to see it. They did it. I think we'll probably end up talking about Megan Rapino a bit later. We can bank on that, but I wanted to call out a couple players I mentioned in my introduction, but... I feel like, you know, just as in the previous World Cup, you know, I feel like then Julie Johnson, now Julie Ertz, was kind of a breakout star and became a real talisman for the team and somebody that fans really rallied around. 
this tournament was really like Rose Lavelle's breakout. And she is somebody who is so charismatic on the field in terms of how she's able to break down defenses, the style that she plays with, the goal that she had um, was really the moment of the game, the kind of culminating moment for the World Cup. And it was, it felt deserved. It was a real kind of passing the torch moment from the older players on the team, including Rapino, to Rose Lavelle. Then the second one I wanted to call out that was my favorite player of the tournament was Sam Mewis. I just love how aggressive she was, always winning balls in the middle of the field. Just you need kind of Mewis's and Lavelle's to win, and they had a Mewis and a Lavelle. I mean, Lavelle particularly, Josh, uh, the goal she scored wasn't just pretty. I mean, it displayed fantastic footwork and ball control, um, two stepovers. She basically, it was the equivalent of breaking the ankles of her defender in basketball. She spun the Dutch defender around and drilled the ball into the lower right-hand corner of the net. Four years ago, she was an amateur. She's 24 years old. She did not have a super lot of confidence when she was first called up into, I think it was the U-20 team, and the evolution. And this is a credit to Jill Ellis for sort of trusting that seeing something in Rose Lavelle that would develop into the kind of player that in the biggest game of this team's quadrennial cycle, she would show up and perform beautifully. And she performed beautifully throughout the whole tournament. The players that I would also like to single out are two you know, veteran players. I mean, one in her first World Cup, Crystal Dunn, who played incredibly well on defense, on left D, and then on the opposite side of the field, Kelly O'Hara. I mean, going into this tournament, the defense was the thing that critics of the women's national team were worried would let them down. The goalkeeper, Alyssa Nair, had that one terrible blunder against Spain. She played great again last night, particularly against England and against France. And then the wing fullbacks were locked down. I mean, this was, they won those games for them against France and England. I mean, Crystal Dunn particularly. So we saw the celebrations on the field afterwards, players making confetti angels, all of the uh, FIFA pageantry with the awarding of the medals and the silver balls and the golden balls and 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 whatnot. But the real party, Stefan, was happening on Instagram, particularly on Ashlyn Harris's Instagram. We have a compilation of some <laughs> of the greatest moments from the Ashlyn Harris Instagram stories. Let's listen to that now. All right, Stefan, you have the raucous scenes in the locker room. You have some twerking, but you also have Ashlyn Harris talking about, you know, two-time World Cup champion with my wife, referring to Allie Krieger, her teammate. Um, This is a kind of celebration that we have not seen or heard before. No, we also, in that clip, did not hear Ashlyn Harris screaming, this content is fucking gold, bitch, which I think really deserves to be in any compilation of uh, of that celebration. Also, my other favorite moment was then when Megan Rapinoe was still doing the news conference after the game. 
Harris shouting, get your fucking ass in the locker room, bitch. So this was fucking great content, um, but it was also just what you alluded to just now, which is that we got to see these women celebrate in this raw and unvarnished and sort of male way, you know? And I think this is the, the dynamic of this team is that they were unafraid to do anything. This wasn't a team that was concerned about, you know, about about living up to some manufactured image of role modelness, so they were able to balance doing the things the right things, like being, you know, available to fans and signing autographs. The images from Megan Rapino and the rest of the team in the airport in Lyon on Monday, coming home, where they basically stopped and talked with and took selfies with dozens of fans were lovely. But at the same time, it's like this is sanctioned partying. They achieved something so remarkable given the pressure and the expectations that to see them celebrate this way was awesome. Yeah, and I think we also can't underplay the importance of uh, queer representation on this team and in this tournament. Um, you know, Abby Wamba kind of famously kissed her wife and the stands after the 2015 right. World Cup. Kelly O'Hara kissed her partner in the in the stands uh, after this tournament when Kelly O'Hara had previously not spoken about her um, uh, sexual orientation. And, you know, you have Ashlyn Harris talking about her wife in the locker room. You have the official Twitter account of the U.S. Women's National Team, um, you mm-hmm. know, talking about, uh, you know, openly, pridefully about the gay players on the team and kind of gleefully quoting Megan Rapinoe, talking about how you can't win without gays on your team because it's science. Like this stuff is was really, really notable and noteworthy and important. And at the same time, very normal, as in there was no self-consciousness about it. I mean, it took Abby Wambach quite a long time to come out publicly and to discuss her sexuality and to make it part of her athletic persona. She kept those separate for a long time. And it really felt sort of organic, the way these women are comfortable in who they are. They are comfortable fighting for um, the for LGBTQ rights. They're comfortable talking about this issue. You know, it's just, it, it's just they were helping to, to sort of make this not even something you know, that needs to be discussed. This is just who these women are and it is a part of their lives and you can watch it and you can be critical or you can be accepting or you can not even process it because it is just them living their lives. And I think that's a lot of what we saw from this team, women living their lives and not being worried about the blowback or the criticism or you know, the reactions of people that they may, that may feel threatened by who they are. Kim McCauley and SB Nation had a good piece about why the team's open queerness matters. We'll link to that on our show page. Uh, Jason Gay on the Wall Street Journal also described the team as transformatively unapologetic. Um, unapologetic, I think, is a really good word. And um, you alluded to the fact that all the pressure on this team, all the stuff that they talked about, whether it was their on-field stature or um, equal pay, and the fact that they delivered, I think, if it's not unprecedented in terms of how much they delivered and how well they delivered in the annals of American team sports, it is not very well precedented. 
Yeah, Jason also used the word multidimensional, and I think that is even more like it. I think secure and impervious are other good words to describe um, describe this team. To me, it was really the totality of what they were able to ch- uh, to achieve here. Um, you know, and, and I'm willing to go back and reconsider some of the things that I said at the beginning of this tournament. You know, you can still you can criticize the the behavior in their Thailand game celebrations when they were going crazy after goals 9, 10, 11, 12, and 13, and then move on. It bothered me, but they helped me just realize, like, okay, you know, a team does something. I can not like it, but I can then continue to appreciate who they are and the other things that they're about to accomplish. And then they had to deal with things like the silly blowback over Alex Morgan's celebration against England after scoring her goal in sipping tea. Um, And she had to explain what she was doing, you know, signaling that that's the tea, that's the news, Um, but also that men do weirder and more obscene things on the field, like grabbing their their testicles after they score goals. Um, So... The what I'm coming around to now is that they've helped sort of expand the profile of what this team can be, and that's why I think they deserve to be sort of considered one of the great teams of all time. I mean, athletically, I mean, Jesus, they 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 as you said, twenty six to three in terms of uh, their goal differential in this tournament. They were thirteen zero and one with a forty to six goal differential in the last two World Cups. They haven't lost in regulation in a World Cup since the group stage in 2011. That's 18 games. And they've done this under, like, ridiculous public scrutiny that no team faces. You know, they've ex- they, they're expected to be, and they've chosen to be role models. They needed to win it all in order to enable the growth of their own sport domestically. They needed to win it all to, to get some leverage for personal compensation and for the compensation of other women athletes. Um, losing would have been an actual setback in that regard. Um, and these women were able to sort of rise above all of the bullshit and silence it with logic and performance. And the other thing that, that kind of swayed me, Josh, is that they are sort of going beyond the idea that they just have to be sort of role models for little girls. It's okay to swig champagne and gear and twerk and say bitch a lot. Um, Children will not be harmed. This is how athletes celebrate after they've crushed everybody and already sent a, a bajillion wholesome and progressive images to the world about female strength and empowerment and equity. It's like they're claiming space that was occupied exclusively by men before and that's a great thing. So there is an equal pay chance in the stadium where you chanting? Right near me. Yeah, I was sitting right next to the American Outlaws who started the chant. And yeah, Chloe and I were certainly chanting. So this is the next battle for this team. There's going to be a parade. There's going to be a victory tour. There's going to be an Olympics in 2020. But the big fight is going to be with U.S. soccer about the way that this sport is structured financially. U.S. soccer also supports uh, the NWSL, the women's pro league. So everything is all kind of tied up together. This is a conversation that was happening before the tournament. It's a conversation that was happening during. And I think there's obviously going to be a sense now, and I think rightly, Stefan, for this team, that they really want to aggressively capitalize on the goodwill 
of the public and try to make something happen with this now. And not only capitalize on the goodwill on the public, but capitalize on the power that they've accumulated by right. Good point. by winning this tournament. And Sally Jenkins in her column in the Washington Post pointed this out, that women don't get what they deserve until someone or some group demonstrates incontrovertible power. And that's what they've done here. Um, I mean, it's really going to be hard for U.S. soccer now to argue with a straight face that compensation and investment in women's soccer for these players in particular and for the sport more broadly um, should be dictated solely by revenue. Alicia Rose Del Gallo of ProSoccerUSA.com asked Pino at the hotel on Monday as they were leaving to go back home whether winning changes the dynamic of this equal pay lawsuit that they filed against the U.S. Soccer Federation. And Pino said, well, it's not good for them, is it? This sort of just blows it out of the water. It's like, is it even about that anymore? Or is it just about doing the right thing? And, you know, I've argued before, Josh, in the conversation we've had about this lawsuit and about this fight for pay equity, that this isn't about revenue generation. The U.S. Soccer Federation is not a pro sports league. Their collective bargaining agreement doesn't stipulate that the players on the men's and women's teams are entitled to 50% of the revenue or whatever. Um, this is a development organization. The U.S. women won world championships in 1991, 96, 99, 2004, 08, 12, 15, and now 19. At any moment, in those years, U.S. soccer could have decided to pay these women equitably or better than equitably than the men, and they chose not to. Um, and the leverage now has, I think, you know, is is completely the women's. And yeah, I expect them to go hard after U.S. soccer, and they've already made inroads with FIFA too. All right, let's continue this conversation in our Slate Plus segment. We'll talk more about. FIFA, about the Pro League, and anything else that strikes our fancy. We want to keep chatting about these American heroes. Stefan, thank you very much. You'll be back with us in the United States next week, yes? A couple more days in Paris, Josh, and then I will be back and preparing for uh, for next Monday's show. All right. Happy anniversary. Talk to you soon. Thank you, Josh. Happy anniversary. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. On Saturday at 4.08 a.m. Eastern Time, Stefan Fatsis texted me from France, Kawhi to Clippers, wake up. Those messages were in all capital letters. Three hours later, he texted again, and George. 
Despite Stefan's best efforts, I did not wake up. And I must say, Fatsis was a bit late with his bulletin. Yahoo's Chris Haynes broke the news at 1.53 a.m. Eastern, 10.53 p.m. in Las Vegas, where the Athletics' Ethan Strauss is watching NBA Summer League, and I presume enjoying sumptuous buffets. Ethan, welcome back to the show. It's great to be back. I just like the idea of you waking up and getting a text that says, and George, uh, without any context. (laughs) It just seems very odd as a standalone text. Yeah, I don't think Paul George is on either a first name or last name basis, which is maybe unique among NBA players of his stature. He's on a two first names (laughs) basis is what he's on. So Stefan botched that text. I think that much is clear. The Kawhi to the Clippers thing was not what anyone expected. Uh, hang up and listen, NBA insider Ethan Strauss. You weren't uh, touting this to your tens of thousands of followers. This was going to happen. Nor were any of your NBA news-breaking ilk. This caught everybody by surprise. No, this isn't how the game is played, Josh. I have to tell the public uh, without ever having reported it or given them any indication before it happened. You know, those of us on the inside, we were hearing rumblings of this, you know, rumblings of it. And then when it happened, we said, yeah, you know, makes a lot of sense. Consid- no, it was, it was very surprising. I was at a Korean barbecue, um, and there were other media people. The entire contingent of media people who cover the Utah Jazz uh, was at a table next to me, and somebody called it out. And then it looked quite Did someone yell out, and George? No, nobody yelled out and George. They actually, they actually articulated themselves a little better than Stefan. They, they, they said, oh my God, you, you know, Paul George has been traded or something to that effect. But it looked futuristic, if not dystopian, because all of a sudden everybody had their phone out and were just reacting to things that were happening on the phone. Nobody was looking at each other while communicating for a full 15 minutes. Everybody was just looking at the phone and communicating with each other about the information. You know, because we see this in restaurants where people might be looking at their phones when they're perhaps they should be having a conversation. This one was weird because everybody was looking at their phones, and that was the basis of the conversation. So we all thought, or at least I thought, that the reason that everybody else had come to uh, a decision about where they were going, but Kawhi was waiting, is that he was in a contemplative mode. This is a guy who, since he's been in the NBA, he gets traded on draft day to San Antonio. He gets traded to the Raptors. He's never been able to pick his team. He's, you know, the decline of the free agency presentation. Kevin Durant does not need to see a PowerPoint. Kawhi just wants to revel and bask in the PowerPoints. But actually what's going on is that he is quietly, in his Kawhi-ish way, scheming to try to get other star players to the Clippers, which is a strange sentence for like eight different reasons. Ramona Shelburne reports that he originally tried to get Kevin Durant to go there. Then the Paul George thing obviously happened. The way that my friend phrased it that I thought was genius is that Kawhi was weaponizing his introversion. That mm. he, everybody thought that he was just, you know, in a cave silently contemplating when mm. in fact he's like Machiavelliishly maneuvering the entire NBA in his palm. Yeah, it's the next step, isn't it? I mean, to player power, to superstar power, because first it's you need to grovel before me and make me feel uh, recruited and give me that attention and wine and dine me. That's how powerful I am. And this is a new version or an evolution in it of you guys all have to make moves and change your organization based on what I need. And 
from what I hear talking to people of the Clippers, this was all set up. This was almost a nuclear option that they didn't want to go to. They would have preferred, and they're not going to say this perhaps, but they, they would have preferred that Kawhi shows up there and they have all the assets they have today and then they make a move later. But he forced the issue, him and Uncle Dennis perhaps, that they you know, get that other star, get Paul George. And so the Clippers had this option, and eventually Kawhi forced them to press that button and make this happen, and that was the chronology of what occurred. I love Uncle Dennis, by the way. Oh, yeah. Kawhi's uncle, Dennis Robertson, the power behind the throne. Just the fact that there is a guy named Uncle Dennis who is just a prominent figure in the NBA right now just makes this so much better. Do you think that we had Kawhi wrong? I mean, it's not like anybody presumed to really understand the guy in the first place. But um, whether you think that it's right or wrong that he um, you know, recruited George, that he placed these demands on the Clippers, it just doesn't seem like this was part of the image to the extent that there was an image of Kawhi Leonard. Well, it's hard to say we have him wrong or not. I think what happens in the absence of information, we start projecting whatever would make sense for for a person. And uh, so we were thinking that, okay, so this is what your standard superstar would want, this is what your standard superstar does, and we just don't know. And I think we, we just project. We project on a blank canvas. You know, this isn't to say that Kawhi is at all like this guy, but you remember with Marvin Harrison, because he was so quiet, we projected a bunch of qualities on Marvin Harrison that maybe weren't totally that guy's personality. That just got really dark. Okay. Yeah, but I think that's a that's that's an extreme example of that where we go, okay, well, this guy is so stoic because he's so calm because um, you know we, we we go down the line when obviously that guy had a had a fiery side and we didn't really. Years and years into it, we didn't really know who he was. And I think with Kawhi, um, it's still it's still a bit of a mystery. A lot of what I know about him comes secondhand. I don't know him. I just you know I just knew that he loved San Diego far more than I did, even though I grew up in San Diego, and that he went to all the restaurants that that I knew of, and that was his just a dream of an off season to hang out in San Diego and um, go to taco shops and eat burritos. And that's, that's effectively, that's effectively what I know of him. (laughs) That's about it. NBA insider, Ethan Strauss. For those who don't know, Marvin Harrison was at one time thought to be a person of interest in a shooting, though he was not ever charged. So that was the implication of what Ethan was saying. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what the implication was. I would never (laughs) consider, some of the things in the reporting on Marvin Harrison, I would never be that specific in anything I'm saying about Marvin Harrison. <laughs> anyway, uh, moving along. So <laughs> the kind of two schools of thought about this move from like a broader NBA perspective are school number one, Durant goes to the Nets, uh, Kawhi goes to the Clippers, Bravo, like well-managed franchises are going to get these stars rather than just the total train wrecks of the Knicks and the Lakers. If you manage your franchise well, you have a chance to get the best players and and succeed. School of thought number two, the best, biggest stars just go to the big markets. And if the Knicks or Lakers were well run, they would have gone there. But, you know, it's Brooklyn and and the Clippers, six of one, half dozen of the other. Bad times for the OKCs. 
of the world. I just this weird urge to chant school of thought too. School <laughs> of thought too. I don't know why I felt the urge to chant it, but that's just what was in my head. I'm, I'm massively in, in the school of thought too. I apologize if you had an additional thought to tack onto that. But. No, there's no school of thought three. It's just a one versus two situation. <laughs> uh, two is apparently the big winner. Explain. I, I do think that managing your franchise well gives you a better shot at things and helps your probabilities, but it does seem like the Lakers, for a moment, were this Jonah Ryan-esque figure in the NBA of failing upwards and just by insisting upon themselves with bombast and lack of awareness, were going to stumble into this three-superstar Leviathan, and it damn near happened, and Look, I think a lot of people will be making arguments about, hey, it was uh, it was the Clippers or 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 it was the Raptors and or it was the Lakers and versus the Clippers. I'm not sure. I just know again, knowing knowing what little we know of Kawhi, but knowing what I know of growing up in San Diego and Southern California in general, nobody leaves, or at least very few people leave. All things being equal, for cold weather. That's just not something we're equipped to do. We're not born with it. When you live somewhere with cold weather, and I hate to take, take it back to something as prosaic as, as weather, but there's a reason why it's the cliche thing people talk about in small talk. It does matter, and it's a massive, massive tax on your life if you are not used to it and you didn't grow up with it, and then you add the cultural alienation of being in another country. Um, so I thought the Raptors were, were in a tough spot there. And did the Nets uh, get the sun in a sign and trade with the, with the Warriors? Did that, did that happen? Oh, that, I'm sure if Joe Lacob, uh, didn't own a Bay area team, but owned a team in the Midwest, I'm sure he would look into it. But I think that the upshot is mostly that these markets are big. The players want to be in them. The world is flat. Thomas Friedman esque idea that it doesn't matter where you play because of social media. Um, that's, that's, you know, it doesn't matter. You know, if you have some cool highlights, people will share them on Twitter. Uh, I think that is bullshit. I don't think that's true at all. I think it's been proven to be false because one, um, I think the social media is a force multiplier, uh, for one being in a market with a ton of people and it expands your army even further. Um, and you have even more people on the internet. Uh, shouting your name from the uh, metaphorical rooftops. And then two, to speak to what Adam Silver talked about at the Sloan Conference, that these guys have never been more alienated from one another because they're obsessed with their phones. The NBA is so, in, it's just so entangled with Twitter and social media that creates a dynamic where players are thinking more than ever about their personal brands, where there is no boredom space where they bond and play cards perhaps on the road and then it becomes okay what's good for me in a business sense what is the ideal vessel for me to expand my brand you know these other guys around me they're cool enough i don't know them too well i don't have extreme bonds with them um a Kawhi leonard situation perhaps where it's great that we win the championship this year but continuing it not that really not 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 that's not so much important to me um, so what you're saying is the world is a Korean barbecue, and we're all just staring at our phones. We're all just sitting there staring at our phones as the bulgogi burns, and that's what's going on. I like that as a like NBA off-season rubric, as the bulgogi burns. So it's, not only did the Lakers not end up getting 
Kawhi and whether it was intentional or unintentional, I like to think it was intentional despite having no evidence. The Lakers were sabotaged here. All of the free agents, both first tier and second tier, passed them by as they were waiting for Kawhi. And so what ends up happening is when you know Kawhi goes elsewhere, they have to spend their cap space. They get Danny Green. They... Uh, end up kind of reconstituting the 2017-2018 New Orleans Pelicans. They now have DeMarcus Cousins, Rajon Rondo, uh, Anthony Davis, not bad. Um, They've got, you know, JaVale and Contavious Caldwell-Pope from last year. You know, not the greatest possible outcome for the Lakers. I guess they'll be fine. It's just, it is funny how this ended up for them. He screwed them. He screwed them Uh, by waiting this long, by drawing them into these talks. Uh, whether unintentionally or intentionally, it was the upshot that the Lakers uh, needed depth. They needed depth if they didn't get Kawhi. Um, and by then it was too late. And they're not a smart enough organization, frankly, or haven't been shown to be uh, or savvy enough to just just get that out of thin air. And so they made a bunch of old-school NBA signings that don't seem to fit right now in the, in the current era. Um, and that's why you see guys like Rondo and you see uh, Cousins on, on the roster. Um, and I, I should add, these people will say, well, didn't the Warriors get Cousins? I don't think that was a good move, ultimately, in the end. Well, and he was also just kind of uh, like Lanyap for them. He, it wasn't like a yeah. guy that they were counting on to do much of anything, although it turned out in the finals <laughs> they ended up having to, which is not a great sign for them. Dick move by Paul George. He had signed a that, – that should have ended in a question mark. Um, <laughs> de, he had just signed a long-term extension with Oklahoma City last year. Uh, the mayor declared Paul George Day. Uh, there will not be a second annual Paul George Day. <laughs> <laughs> in OKC, but he requests a trade after Kawhi Leonard recruits him with all these years left on his deal. Sam Presti, the you know head of basketball ops or whatever they call him in Oklahoma City, consents to this like almost uh, you know very quickly and gets a whole bunch of stuff from from the Clippers first round picks and Shea Gilgis Alexander, the young point guard. But we've talked about player empowerment in terms of. Kawhi Leonard, like this is a dude who's empowered by virtue of him being a free agent. Paul George is like pushing the boundaries further than Anthony Davis did, who requested a trade with a year and change uh, on his deal. This is like three years left on his contract. That's pushing it, my man. Yes. I mean, there's so much interesting right there because you've got Paul George doing the new thing that the NBA probably wants to suppress, but I'm not sure how of players going, yeah, I signed this deal, but what, you want an ugly situation where I don't even want to be on this team, you know, or do you want to get assets for me, deal me to where I want to go, combined with Paul George is a very powerful agent and Aaron Mintz, and teams probably would like to uh, play ball with, uh, with Mintz down the line and CAA generally. It's a powerful agency. So there's that as well, and that's just, that's just how it goes. And it speaks to how players, again, are seeing these teams as merely vessels for their for themselves and their brand expansion in a way that's new. On the other side of that, I think you see something similar from Kawhi. If Kawhi had just really made it clear, I'm going to the Clippers. I'm not going anywhere else. This is where I'm going. Then you don't have the situation where the Raptors are being leveraged against the Clippers and the Clippers have to sell away so much of their future to get Paul George. But Kawhi doesn't care 
fundamentally about the Clippers' future. That's not something he seems to care about insofar as... You don't think he wants it. to be the first retired number in Clippers history? But as yeah. research for this podcast, I looked up Los Angeles Clippers retired jersey numbers. They don't have any. That is an amazing, amazing stat. You know who else doesn't? The Raptors. He could he could have uh, been the first Raptors retired jersey, too. Yeah, it was probably something... Well, at least with the Clippers, maybe uh, it, it costs money to retire a number, and, and, and Donald <laughs> Sterling just never wanted to fork over the $50,000 or whatever it is to raise something into the rafters. But it, it shows me that Kawhi doesn't care about the legacy of the team after him being good or a tradition, you know, a winning tradition. Um, in, in the way I was, I, I ran into last night uh, somebody who played for De La Salle. He, he works for a team, but De La Salle is this great uh, high school at, at football and also basketball in, in the East Bay. And he said, you know, he's just into the genius De La Salle plates. And uh, there's, there's this motto that tradition never graduates. You know, there's not that sort of feeling for these professional teams from these guys. Kawhi doesn't care that the Clippers will probably be shit out of luck after he leaves because he asked them to just kind of needlessly uh, trade away so many assets to, the, to get this guy that he, that he wanted in a way that they would not have had to if he had just made it clear that he was going there in the first place and there was no leverage. So you see from both sides, actually, of this, with the Thunder um, and with the Clippers of the principles just not caring too much about any attachment to these teams. Are you ready for a final school off? School of thought A and B? Oh, oh, give me this. All right. School A. This move saved the NBA, at least in the short term. Uh, There is now no unambiguously clear title favorite. Um, The Clippers became the betting favorite after Steel was made, but the Lakers, Jazz, Nuggets, uh, maybe the Warriors are strong contenders in the West. You've got the Sixers and Bucks uh, in the East. This is going to be um, the most exciting NBA season yet because we have no idea who's going to come out on top. School B is that that is an illusion. Parody should not lull us into thinking that the NBA is in a good and strong and safe place as uh, this will just be temporary, the uh, you know division of assets will become yet more stark, inequality will grow and reign, and uh, this is just uh, you know a brief respite until we get to the doomsday scenario of New York versus L.A. <laughs> forever until we die. Um, I'm more school thought. School thought be. Uh, and it's funny because I actually do think it's good for the NBA when players are in the markets where people live. But the problem is that it's it's just it's getting communicated to the broader fans, the fan base of America, not NBA fans necessarily, that these guys aren't that interested in winning and aren't that interested in championships. That even if they win a championship, they're on to the next thing. I don't think people like that. It was theoretically going to be good for the NBA when LeBron went to the Lakers. Uh, He was going to the biggest brand. But the problem is this. The problem is that everybody correctly interpreted that move 
as not a move about winning and not a move about championships, but a move about being near Hollywood and becoming more famous, and the NBA ratings actually tanked last year. They wouldn't have if the Lakers were better, but that was baked into the decision-making. He was choosing a team, an organization that just wasn't going to be very good, so it obviously wasn't about winning. And people want this all to be about winning. They do. And they do want these guys to be somewhat loyal to these situations. They want something that I, I understand why the players can't give it to them and don't feel it, but the fans want it. The fans want Giannis to go, I happen to just love Milwaukee, and I have an attachment to them, and they invested in me early, and I love dark beer, and I love cheese. I mean, they want that, but it's just not happening. And so I don't think the NBA has been saved. I, I think that there's a lot of boosterism in NBA media. There's a lot of hashtag this league where we keep talking about how the NBA has never been more popular than ever. Uh, that's not what the numbers say. That's not what the stats say. The ratings are falling. There's this idea that, oh, well, digital something, something, something is going to save it and streaming. Well, we would be hearing those numbers, but we don't. I don't think the NBA is in a good place right now. I think the NBA is in a bad place right now. I think the NBA needs to figure out a way to get winning more aligned um, in terms of the incentives uh, going forward. And it's just a very difficult thing to do. Um, And now it's combined with the situation where, look, I get that there's parity, but we tend to know how 20 games into the season, which teams are good and which teams have a shot. I don't necessarily buy that. People are going to be so invested in the novelty of all of this in an 82-game season after the first part. I'm excited to see it, but I'm you know, a hardcore NBA person. I don't know if the casual fan feels the same way. I think casual fans like when they're flipping channels. Well, look, I look at it from this perspective. I don't follow football. I don't really watch football. But if I'm channel flipping during the NFL playoffs and I see that it's the Patriots and Tom Brady and he's going for another championship – okay, I'm stopping on that, and I'm watching it. If it's a bunch of guys I've never heard of, or if it's some hypothetical of Tom Brady playing for the Bucks, um, that's not really happening. And I think that's how people interface with the NBA as well. Uh, I don't really follow that analogy, Tom Brady playing for the Bucks, but I, I, I meant the Tampa Bay Bucks. Oh, the Tampa Bay Bucks. Yeah. Got it. Anyway, I think there's like several strong counterarguments to what you just said. Number one, the kind of genius that's baked into the NBA is that somebody wins every year, uh, no matter what. And you can retroactively apply this idea that somebody cares about winning to that season because somebody won. So that's not really an issue. Number two is that you know, you're old, uh, as am I, and people of the younger generations care less about teams than they do about players. And so they interface with the game in the same way that a Kawhi Leonard does. They want the NBA to be a vessel, maybe not Kawhi Leonard, nobody cares about him, but <laughs> LeBron or whoever. Like they want the NBA to be a vessel for their favorite players greatness. They don't care about the nobody cares about the future of the Clippers. It's not just Kawhi. It's like the Clippers fa- I guess Clippers fans do, but other otherwise nobody nobody does. And so I I think in some ways you're like looking at the game in a fogeyish way, which fair enough. But in other ways I think that just the way in which we apply those old fogeyish narratives, we will do that in regardless of whatever the facts on the ground are. We can make it work. We've done it before. Well, 
I don't know how to counter argue to your counter argument that somebody wins every year. I mean, I'm trying to do that, but it seems like somebody indeed wins every year. So there is that. And maybe it's just now it's like the, the World Series of Poker where it's just, hey, who's going to win it? And it has little connection to what happens the next year. And, and that's what we go with. But my rebuttal to your idea that this is all old and fogeyish is that the NBA, I think, has gotten too far out into this ledge um, thinking that this is the future. And the numbers don't back up that this is the future. They would be doing better. The ratings would be higher. People would be thrilling to this. They aren't. It's not happening. This idea that this is just going to be how it is. Yeah, it plays well on Twitter. Most people aren't on Twitter. It's not. It's not working. It's not going well. Maybe I'll be proven wrong. Maybe next year there will be so much interest in these guys and their personal narratives and following them um, and how they're using these teams as brands, that there will be a huge level of interest in the sport. I could see it happening. I could see being wrong about this. But I do believe that some element of tradition and teams as brands, that's what gets people into these sports. And it's true of the NBA as well, even if the NBA is the most individualized of sports. Ethan Strauss writes about the NBA for The Athletic. I would argue that looking at ratings is actually fogeyish too. The numbers on House of Highlights are popping, man. Yeah, well, how do you make money off that is the other question. But that's a whole other thing. I mean, yeah, maybe you're popular, but you're popular in a way that makes Jack Dorsey money. Is that really the goal? I don't know. <laughs> Thank you, Ethan. Thanks, Josh. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Before we get to my conversation with Louisa Thomas about Coco Goff, wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, Stefan and I will continue our chat from earlier about the U.S. national team, the World Cup, and the future of women's soccer in the U.S. of A. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. 
On Monday at Wimbledon, Coco Goff's remarkable run ended at the hands of Simona Halep, who defeated the 15-year-old American in the fourth round in straight sets, 6-3, 6-3. When Goff won her first round match against her hero, 39-year-old Venus Williams, she became the youngest person to win a main draw match at a Grand Slam tournament since Anna Kornikova in 1996, the youngest at Wimbledon since Jennifer Capriati in 1991. Goff won two more matches after that, saving match points to beat unseated Polona Herzog in the third round, a match that was played on center court, thanks to Goff's emerging stardom. Joining me now to talk about Coco Goff is Louisa Thomas, writes about tennis for The New Yorker, and is the co-author with John Urschel of Mind and Matter, A Life in Math and Football. Hey, Louisa. Hi. Before this week, Louisa, Coco Goff was a name that the tennis cognoscenti knew, by which I mean that Louisa Thomas knew. (laughs) She's been winning big junior tournaments since she was a little kid, but this was her first time playing on the really big stage and on Wimbledon's biggest courts. What did you see when you watched her play this past week? Oh, she was so impressive. The thing that actually struck me most was how adaptable she was. Um, I knew that she had power. I knew that she had a tremendous serve. People have been talking about that for years. Um, I knew that she was good off the ground, but um, and this really came through in her third round match. She really showed an ability to, you know, win under fire and when what she was trying wasn't working to try new things. You saw that most obviously with her going to the slice a lot. But, you know, against Halep today, she was, um, you know, she was trying serving and volleying. She was showing really kind of really sound actually fundamentals at net, which was nice to see because that's pretty rare from for a young American <laughs> baseliner. Um, but that was what was so interesting to me. It wasn't just that she um, was a tremendous talent because, as you said, we, we've known that for years. She, she really showed an excellent tennis mind um, and an ability to sort of – and a willingness as well to try and figure things out. That third round match was on center court. Um, Coco's matches were getting the highest ratings in the U.K., it was bonkers. Like, <laughs> like higher than Serena, Roger, whoever. And so they put her on this big court. It definitely wasn't because of Polona Hertz. A million more viewers than everyone else. Yeah. So she gets out there. She falls behind. She's match points down in the second set against a player who, like, not only is she, like, really tatted up, which could be potentially intimidating, um, but she, like, plays this sort of game style that's going to like make you as a player get inside your own head. She slices, but also hits this really big and heavy forehand. And it looked like this was the match in which Goff was going to succumb to the pressure, to the stage, to the moment. She hits this like remarkable slice down the line backhand winner to save one match point. She comes back. She is like slicing back and forth with Herzog. They're having these like 30 shot rallies and this match was not played at like a super duper high level but it was like really high level psychological warfare exactly yeah the way that she was able to emerge from that was so impressive and then in the i don't know if you saw in the post-match press conference she's like i'd like to thank my coach for making these (laughs) slice drills like she didn't really have a good backhand slice until like what like like within the last couple months like this is not somebody who like uh, you know she sounds like a a kid who's like you know at tennis lessons learning a stroke and then she's like slicing with one of the best (laughs) slicers on the tour on center court (laughs) i mean that was what was um i was alluding to She, she just has she's just showing in real time this incredible ability uh, to learn and to, you know, to sort of try things and and to to use what she's training and and not sort of fall back on 
on what she knows best. And she's doing it on the very biggest stages in front of millions and millions and millions of eyeballs. It was so, so impressive and so exciting. It's actually kind of interesting. I was in the middle of moving during part of that match. And so I listened to it on the radio and then only went back and watched the tape. And I was actually surprised by what I saw versus what I heard. I mean, I wasn't prepared really for how weird some of those points were. Super weird. Super weird. And and that match point that she saved with that backhand slice that you alluded to, it, it was uh it was one of the best shots I've ever seen. It was so exciting. I mean, it was I mean, and that's that's a big part of the story, right? Like it's just the energy that she's brought to tennis, you know, and the way her story has resonated and the way that kind of came across, you know, in those big moments is just like very, very exciting. So when Herzog hit a lob and it went out. Um, Coco Goff starts like jumping up and down and raising her arms. I raised my arms in triumph, having having done nothing. Um, but I was still like a super exciting moment. And I think the bigger question that I've been asking myself and I've been excited to ask you is, how can we, as fans of this sport, remain every time that a y- new young teenage star comes on the scene? Why does it seem just as exciting, even when the names that I mentioned, Anna Kornikova, Jennifer Capriati, those stories went into some like super, super dark places. And yet um, when Coco Goff is, uh, you know, on center court now, that's just the furthest possible thing from our minds. It's like, how could anything possibly go wrong? This is so wonderful. Well, youth is so alluring (laughs) always, Um, but it's true. Um, There's so many cautionary tales. That's the reason there are pretty um, strict age regulations and restrictions in place. Um, There's a conversation about whether or not those should be adjusted for a player like Goff, who's shown that she really can compete at the highest levels and will sort of be held back maybe a little bit. Um, And her father made the interesting point that that puts a lot of pressure, actually puts more pressure on her in the few matches that she's allowed to play. But at the same time, there, there's a reason for those, which is that we have all these cautionary tales and and not just the ones you mentioned, you know, the, the Capriati's and the ones where the, the mental toll and the psychological um, burnout was, was probably the real story. There are a lot of um, stories about young players getting injured, you know, these kind of young teenagers who win a few big matches and then, you know, hurt their wrists and are never, um, quite the same. And and so there's a lot of reason for, um, caution, but I also think that like we should throw all that (laughs) into the wind and just totally celebrate. I had a friend who was not a tennis fan, um, texting me being like, I'm in tears, (laughs) you know? And I mean, it's just, it's infectious and it's, it's awesome. And, um, you know, the, the, I think the real challenge is for us as fans is not, not to celebrate. It's not to then, you know, say, well, what have you done for me lately when she, um, you know, bows out in the first round of the U.S. Open. So at the 2014 U.S. Open, I was watching. I was I was there at the court when uh, CC Bellis was on her run and there was CC Mania. Mm-hmm. Um, she beat a seated player, Dominika Chibolkova, in the first round. She was 15 years old. Um, it was crazy like people were just packed into this outer court and waiting in line all day to get in to watch her and it is like unlike anything else in tennis which is this really star-driven sport but the kind of mania 
around a new young talent is just different. And Bellis was, you know, she went got up as high as number 35 in the world. She's now out with a uh, wrist injury. Maybe that's yeah. who you were thinking of. Exactly. When you, when you <laughs> that. She's had like three surgeries this year. Yeah. You know, Melanie Udan was another per- player. I mean, we could go on for like hours and hours just listing players who had issues with their parents or issues with fame or issues with injury. And so when you hear like everybody saying she has good people around her, her parents seem like really great. It's like as much a, a wish as it is a statement. Exactly. Because she is so clearly remarkably talented. She seems to have such a great head on her shoulders. Her parents do seem so well-intentioned. So just the idea that anything could go wrong, it just seems wrong on its face. Like, how could it? How should it? Like, don't ruin this. Right. We've seen the future and the future is is now. And the thing is that sometimes also it does work out. You know, there are a lot of parallels, obvious parallels with the Williams sisters. And, you know, obviously she's she's drawn the connection herself and, and that worked out pretty well. <laughs> For sure. And that's like the, there was something really beautiful about that moment at the net where and this oh, is yeah. another sign of. Coco Goff's just like unbelievable maturity is that she says to Venus Williams in this moment, the biggest moment of her, you know, tennis life, at least like, thank you for allowing me to, you know, be here and be in this moment. Venus was clearly touched by this, but there is like a kind of magic and beauty to the fact that, you know, the Williams sisters very literally made this possible for her. They, Richard Williams, um, you know, his, her, her father, Corey Goff uh, is, following the the Richard Williams plan here. And so it seems like, as you alluded to, like maybe by just really following the road uh, that that they carved out, that, that she can be on the maybe healthier path. It's also true that these paths are very rarely straight. We have the example of Naomi Osaka, who is another player who pretty explicitly followed the Williams plan, the Williams model, and has had unbelievable success. Um, at a very young age. Now she seems like senior citizen status by comparison, but now she's struggling for probably a host of reasons, some of which are probably pretty obvious and some of which we probably don't have any idea about. But, you know, I still think that she has a lot more in store for us. So it may be that, um, you know, this is not something where, you know, this is not, I, I do believe, and I keep coming back to this point, that tennis um, usually doesn't follow linear trajectories. Um, that, you know, someone can can burst onto the scene and then kind of disappear and then come back. And, um, you know, it, it's it's a tough sport in a lot of ways. But um, but and one of the reasons is, is someone else is going to come along. But at the same time, um, this is someone that that people have been waiting a long time for. And she does seem to have good, you know, quote unquote, good people around her. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's all, you know, luck is going to play a big factor. Injuries will play a big factor. We don't know what's in store. So might as well, you know, celebrate what we've seen. Yeah. So after, you know, her first couple wins, I went looking around for some older videos of her. And I found on YouTube, I think the first video, um, at least, you know, if you at least as far as when it was uploaded, is one of her strength training when she was 10 years old. (laughs) And what that made me think of is, okay, so representation is hugely important. The Williams sisters succeed and all of these kids and their parents think it's possible for me, like there may be a place for me in this 
sport. And, you know, I don't know if we said it exp- explicitly, Coco Goff is, uh, is black, African-American. And so, um, you know, all of all that does is allow you the oppor- it allows you to like see someone like you who looks like you who has succeeded and then okay so now you're just going to work 8 hours a day from the time you're 7 years old <laughs> to try to close that gap between you know your your dream and reality and so that is the thing is that somebody who quote unquote bursts onto the scene since they were 15 she's been working so hard and so such a dedicated way and all these coaches that talk about her you know they say that she's just been like obsessed and driven with with making it um and that's the thing that kind of gets forgotten or erased when you just like see somebody on center court at 15 right they seem to have emerged from nowhere you know sort of like um fully formed um it is also true that there are plenty of examples of players who are even some of the players who win when they're quite young, you know, Roger Federer was a, uh, played a lot of soccer, you know, and Alexander Zverev played a lot of field hockey. I mean, there's, there are plenty of examples of, of, um, great tennis players, even prodigies who, you know, don't specialize very early and are maybe the better for it. So it is sort of worrisome when you think, oh, well now here's the model you have to follow. You have to be right. <laughs> lifting weights for 10 as a 10. Um, but there is, there is something to be said for her kind of singular focus and, and hunger um, in the way that doesn't also seem to be imposed upon her, which I think is um, something that you don't always see in tennis. I think a lot of times you see someone who is sort of like built by others, you know, to be a champion and, and what's exciting about seeing, and maybe that's one of the things that's exciting about watching a young player is that, you know, it seems so self-generated. Um, you know, I also think that there is one thing that we should remember is that, um, and I thought about this because she was playing Halep, we take it a little bit for granted that experience is a, is like a good thing. You know, the experience will always win. Um, you know, when, when Halep lost to um, Ostapenko in the French Open final a couple of years ago, she sort of very smartly said that I wish I didn't have experience losing, <laughs> you know, you know, this young player was able, able to go out and just go for broke because she didn't know how rare these chances were and, and how hard it was. And, um, you know, there's something to be said for the kind of um, freedom that goes with, with never having been there before. Well, yeah. And also like the innocence of youth, you might believe perhaps rightly and perhaps wrongly that this is going to be the first of hundreds of chances that you'll have. And so, you know, if this one doesn't work out, you'll have another, uh, you know, another several dozen, if, if not more. Whereas Simona Halep is like, you know, I'm really good at tennis. Making the French open final is not a thing that happens to me uh, that often. She knows how rare it is and it's going to stress you out. Um, all right, let's before we go, let's talk about Coco Goff's personality because I think another reason why we love these young stars is a kind of guilelessness. Yeah. Somebody who is not jaded about talking to the press or much of anything else. I got a clip for us to listen to from the press conference after her third round match. Let's take a listen to it now. Last question. Um, you're not anywhere near 16 yet. Mm-hmm. You've just won the best part of $200,000 for winning this game today. Okay, cool. 
<laughs> and you're gonna find it. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> it's an awful lot of pocket money, that isn't it? What yeah. are you, are you, I mean, can you imagine buying yourself something, doing something with it? It's a hell of uh, a lot of money. I mean, I can't buy a car because I can't drive. So, <laughs> um, I don't know. I not. I, I hate spending money to be honest. So I don't really know. Maybe I'm gonna buy some more Misfits rep, which is a uh, Jaden's uh, line. Buy some hoodies from that. What a charming individual. I mean, I guess the the thing that's so fun about that, and by the way, she's talking about Jaden Smith and his line of hooded sweatshirts. But the thing that's so great about that is just how it comes through really clearly that she's a teenager there, and then that's after watching someone perform in this like magnificent way on the court, just the contrast there. I love that answer. Um, she is a kid. She's 15 years old. Um, she shouldn't be thinking about tennis all the time. She shouldn't um, be thinking about money all the time. She should be thinking about the things that 15-year-olds love. Um, and, and you know, good on her. So I think that um, that's one of the reasons people are really excited about her. She's delightful. She's... Um, seems to have a good kind of attitude about about what she's doing and where she's going with it. And, um, you know, on the one hand, it bodes well. And on the other hand, who knows? But, um, you know, I hope she, she leaves there smiling. Um, I certainly am. Louisa Thomas writes about tennis for The New Yorker. She's the co-author with John Urschel of Mind and Matter, A Life in Math and Football. Thank you so much, Louisa. Thank you. And now it is time for After Ball Singular. It's just me your friend Josh. 1991, first official FIFA World Cup. The golden ball winner of that tournament, which the U.S. won, was a woman named Karen Jennings, now Karen Jennings Gabara. I feel like is not properly touted and celebrated as uh, a hero of the U.S. women's national team program. Uh, Karen Jennings Gabara had 53 goals and 117 appearances for the U.S. women's national team. And during the early 90s and at the 1991 World Cup, Karen Jennings Gabara, she was in the triple-edged sword of the American front line with April Heinrichs and Michelle Akers. So here is to Karen Jennings Gabara of the triple-edged sword. And my Karen Jennings Gabara is going to seamlessly transition into yet more conversation about that 1991 World Cup. Over the weekend, I wrote a piece for Slate about the U.S. women's national soccer team and the national teams of the past. And I mentioned in that inaugural 1991 World Cup, the games were shortened to 80 minutes. Uh, U.S. forward April Heinrichs, who was part of that triple-edged sword offensive attack, said they were afraid our ovaries were going to fall out if we played a full 90. So that's why they were shortened to 80 minutes. Uh, The games were televised in the United States on tape delay. They were on a network called Sports Channel America, which I do not think we got in New Orleans. Uh, If we did, uh, it was so far up the cable dial that I was not aware of it. So uh, my source for all that information that I just cited, it came from an article titled The Beleaguered History of the Women's World Cup. Uh, It appears on the website Sport and American History. It was written by Lindsay Piper. She is an associate professor of sport management at the University of Lynchburg. This is a great and informative article. And in that article, Lindsay Piper gets into events that preceded the first FIFA Women's World Cup, which incidentally was known at the time as the first FIFA World Championship for women's football for the M&M's Cup, which is a mouthful. It was only given the official World Cup moniker retroactively. 
Uh, the M&M's Cup is what it was called at the time. But 21 years before that, before even a, an M&M's Cup, in 1970, there was a Women's World Championship. It was an event that was sponsored by the Federation of Independent European Female Football. Uh, the participants were Austria, Denmark, England, Germany, Italy, Mexico, and Switzerland. 50,000 fans watched Denmark beat Italy 2-0 to zero in the final. The year after that, there was another Women's World Championship, the second Women's World Championship. It was in Mexico this time, six teams. As Piper writes in her article, the Federation of Mexican Football opposed the uh, forum, threatened to find any club that granted women access to their fields. Organizers ended up putting the games in Estadio Azteca and Estadio Jalisco, two major stadiums in Mexico that were privately owned. So they got around that threat, the threatened ban. The other obstacle that this event faced was just astronomical levels of sexism. There was a story in the New York Times that ran under the headline, Soccer Goes Sexy South of Border. Uh, It noted that the goalposts at the event would be painted pink. It continued, there will be beauty salons in the dressing rooms so the girls can present themselves for interviews and public ceremonies complete with false eyelashes, lipstick, and an attractive hairdo. Uniforms will be a multicolored array, and the shorts will be as close as possible to hot pants. Okay, back to Piper's story. She writes, because of the overt sexualization of female athletes, the second Women's World Championship garnered significant attention. Matches reportedly drew an average of 15,000 fans. Mexico's games got over 50,000 spectators. And when Mexico lost to Denmark in the final, supposedly over 111,000 people gathered to watch. As noted earlier, it would take another two decades for FIFA to make the Women's World Cup official. And in 2004, 33 years after the Times wrote about women's soccer players in tight shorts, FIFA president Sepp Blatter said that the game would get more popular if, yes, the players wore tighter shorts. In conclusion, men are scum. And also, in conclusion, that is our show for today. Our producer is Melissa Kaplan. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. If you're still here, I'm guessing you might want even more hangup. In our bonus segment this week, Stefan and I have a lot more to say about the U.S. women's national team and the future of women's soccer in the U.S. Men have failed the women, not only for the first hundred years that the sport was in existence with outright bans on women playing the sport in the countries that started the sport, but more recently in the last 30 years when there has been a World Cup and there have been countries that have devoted some resources to the game. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangout plus. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.